Chapter Seven of Tarzan of the Apes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Seven: The Light of Knowledge. After what seemed an eternity to the little sufferer, he was able to walk once more, and from then on his recovery was so rapid that in another month he was as strong and active as ever. During his convalescence he had gone over in his mind many times the battle with the gorilla, and his first thought was to recover the wonderful little weapon which had transformed him from a hopelessly outclassed weakling to the superior of the mighty terror of the jungle. Also, he was anxious to return to the cabin and continue his investigations of its wondrous contents. So early one morning he set forth alone upon his quest. After a little search, he located the clean-picked bones of his late adversary, and close by, partly buried beneath the fallen leaves, he found the knife now red with rust from its exposure to the dampness of the ground and from the dried blood of the gorilla. He did not like the change in its former bright and gleaming surface, but it was still a formidable weapon, and one which he meant to use to advantage whenever the opportunity presented itself. He had in mind that no more would he run from the wanton attacks of old Tublat. In another moment he was at the cabin, and after a short time had again thrown the latch and entered. His first concern was to learn the mechanism of the lock and this he did by examining it closely while the door was open, so that he could learn precisely what caused it to hold the door, and by what means it released at his touch. He found that he could close and lock the door from within, and this he did so that there would be no chance of his being molested while at his investigation. He commenced a systematic search of the cabin, but his attention was soon riveted by the books which seemed to exert a strange and powerful influence over him, so that he could scarce attend to aught else for the lure of the wondrous puzzle which their purpose presented to him. Among the other books was a primer, some child's readers, numerous picture-books, and a great dictionary. All of these he examined, but the pictures caught his fancy most though the strange little bugs which covered the pages where there were no pictures excited his wonder and deepest thought. Squatting upon his haunches on the table-top in the cabin his father had built, his smooth, brown, naked little body bent over the book which rested in his strong, slender hands, and his great shock of long black hair falling about his well-shaped head and bright, intelligent eyes, Tarzan of the Apes, little primitive man, presented a picture filled at once with pathos and with promise, an allegorical figure of the primordial groping through the black night of ignorance toward the light of learning. His little face was tense and steady, for he had partially grasped, in a hazy, nebulous way, the rudiments of a thought which was destined to prove the key and the solution to the puzzling problem of the strange little bugs. In his hands was a primer, opened at a picture of a little ape similar to himself, but covered, except for hands and face, with strange colored fur, for such he thought the jacket and trousers to be. Beneath the picture were three little bugs, B-O-Y, 
and now he had discovered in the text upon the page that these three were repeated many times in the same sequence. Another fact he learned, that there were comparatively few individual bugs, but these were repeated many times, occasionally alone, but more often in company with others. Slowly he turned the pages, scanning the pictures and the text for a repetition of the combination B-O-Y. Presently he found it beneath the picture of another little ape, and a strange animal which went upon four legs like the jackal, and resembled him not a little. Beneath this picture the bugs appeared as a boy and a dog. There they were, the three little bugs which always accompanied the little ape. And so he progressed very, very slowly, for it was a hard and laborious task which he had set himself without knowing it, a task which might seem to you or me impossible, learning to read without having the slightest knowledge of letters or written language, or the faintest idea that such things existed. He did not accomplish it in a day, or in a week, or in a month, or in a year, but slowly, very slowly, he learned after he had grasped the possibilities which lay in those little bugs, so that by the time he was fifteen he knew the various combinations of letters which stood for every pictured figure in the little primer, and in one or two of the picture books. Of the meaning and use of the articles and conjunctions, verbs and adverbs and pronouns, he had but the faintest conception. One day when he was about twelve he found a number of lead pencils in a hitherto undiscovered drawer beneath the table, and in scratching upon the table-top with one of them he was delighted to discover the black line it left behind it. He worked so assiduously with this new toy that the table-top was soon a mass of scrawly loops and irregular lines, and his pencil-point worn down to the wood. Then he took another pencil but this time he had a definite object in view. He would attempt to reproduce some of the little bugs that scrambled over the pages of his books. It was a difficult task, for he held the pencil as one would grasp the hilt of a dagger, which does not add greatly to ease in writing or to the legibility of the results. But he persevered for months, at such times as he was able to come to the cabin, until at last, by repeated experimenting, he found a position in which to hold the pencil that best permitted him to guide and control it, so that at last he could roughly reproduce any of the little bugs. Thus he made a beginning of writing. Copying the bugs taught him another thing, their number, and though he could not count as we understand it, yet he had an idea of quantity the base of his calculations being the number of fingers upon one of his hands. His search through the various books convinced him that he had discovered all the different kinds of bugs most often repeated in combination, and these he arranged in proper order with great ease because of the frequency with which he had perused the fascinating alphabet picture book. His education progressed but his greatest finds were in the inexhaustible storehouse of the huge illustrated dictionary, for he learned more through the medium of pictures than text, even after he had grasped the significance of the bugs. When he discovered the arrangement of words in alphabetical order, he delighted in searching for and finding the combinations with which he was familiar, and the words which followed them, 
their definitions led him still further into the mazes of erudition. By the time he was seventeen, he had learned to read the simple child's primer, and had fully realized the true and wonderful purpose of the little bugs. No longer did he feel shame for his hairless body or his human features, for now his reason told him that he was of a different race from his wild and hairy companions. He was a M-A-N. They were A-P-E-S. And the little apes which scurried through the forest top were M-O-N-K-E-Y-S. He knew, too, that old Sabor was a L-I-O-N-E-S-S, and Hista a S-N-A-K-E, and Tantor an E-L-E-P-H-A-N-T. And so he learned to read. From then on his progress was rapid. With the help of the great dictionary and the active intelligence of a healthy mind, endowed by inheritance with more than ordinary reasoning powers, he shrewdly guessed at much which he could not really understand, and more often than not his guesses were close to the mark of truth. There were many breaks in his education, caused by the migratory habits of his tribe, but even when removed from his books his active brain continued to search out the mysteries of his fascinating avocation. Pieces of bark and flat leaves and even smooth stretches of bare earth provided him with copy-books whereon to scratch with the point of his hunting-knife the lessons he was learning. Nor did he neglect the sterner duties of life while following the bent of his inclination toward the solving of the mystery of his library. He practiced with his rope and played with his sharp knife, which he had learned to keep keen by wetting upon flat stones. The tribe had grown larger since Tarzan had come among them, for under the leadership of Kerchak they had been able to frighten the other tribes from their part of the jungle, so that they had plenty to eat and little or no loss from predatory incursions of neighbors. Hence the younger males, as they became adult, found it more comfortable to take mates from their own tribe, or if they captured one of another tribe, to bring her back to Kerchak's band and live in amity with him rather than attempt to set up new establishments of their own, or fight with the redoubtable Kerchak for supremacy at home. Occasionally one more ferocious than his fellows would attempt this latter alternative, but none had come yet who could wrest the palm of victory from the fierce and brutal ape. Tarzan held a peculiar position in the tribe. They seemed to consider him one of them, and yet in some way different. The older males either ignored him entirely, or else hated him so vindictively, that but for his wondrous agility and speed, and the fierce protection of the huge Kala, he would have been dispatched at an early age. Tublat was his most consistent enemy, but it was through Tublat that, when he was about thirteen, the persecution of his enemies suddenly ceased, and he was left severely alone except on the occasions when one of them ran amuck in the throes of one of those strange, wild fits of insane rage which attacks the males of many of the fiercer animals of the jungle. Then none was safe. On the day that Tarzan established his right to respect, the tribe was gathered around a small natural amphitheater which the jungle had left free from its entangling vines and creepers, 
in a hollow among some low hills. The open space was almost circular in shape. Upon every hand rose the mighty giants of the untouched forest, with the matted undergrowth banked so closely between the huge trunks that the only opening into the little level arena was through the upper branches of the trees. Here, safe from interruption, the tribe often gathered. In the center of the amphitheater was one of those strange earthen drums which the anthropoids build for the queer rites the sounds of which men have heard in the fastnesses of the jungle, but which none has ever witnessed. Many travelers have seen the drums of the great apes, and some have heard the sounds of their beating and the noise of the wild, weird revelry of these first lords of the jungle. But Tarzan, Lord Greystoke, is doubtless the only human being who ever joined in the fierce, mad, intoxicating revel of the dum-dum. From this primitive function has arisen, unquestionably, all the forms and ceremonials of modern church and state, for through all the countless ages, back beyond the uttermost ramparts of a dawning humanity, our fierce, hairy forebears danced out the rites of the dum-dum to the sound of their earthen drums. Beneath the bright light of a tropical moon, in the depth of a mighty jungle which stands unchanged today, as it stood on that long, forgotten night, in the dim, unthinkable vistas of the long-dead past, when our first shaggy ancestor swung from a swaying bough and dropped lightly upon the soft turf of the first meeting-place. On the day that Tarzan won his emancipation from the persecution that had followed him remorselessly for twelve of his thirteen years of life, the tribe, now a full hundred strong, trooped silently through the lower terrace of the jungle trees and dropped noiselessly upon the floor of the amphitheatre. The rites of the dum-dum marked important events in the life of the tribe, a victory, the capture of a prisoner, the killing of some large fierce denizen of the jungle, the death or accession of a king, and were conducted with set ceremonialism. Today it was the killing of a giant ape, a member of another tribe, and as the people of Kerchak entered the arena two mighty bulls were seen bearing the body of the vanquished between them. They laid their burden before the earthen drum, and then squatted there beside it as guards, while the other members of the community curled themselves in grassy nooks to sleep, until the rising moon should give the signal for the commencement of their savage orgy. For hours absolute quiet reigned in the little clearing, except as it was broken by the discordant notes of brilliantly feathered parrots, or the screeching and twittering of the thousand jungle birds flitting ceaselessly amongst the vivid orchids and flamboyant blossoms which festooned the myriad moss-covered branches of the forest kings. At length, as darkness settled upon the jungle, the apes commenced to bestir themselves, and soon they formed a great circle about the earthen drum. The females and young squatted in a thin line at the outer periphery of the circle, while just in front of them ranged the adult males. Before the drum sat three old females, each armed with a knotted branch, fifteen or eighteen inches in length. Slowly and softly they began tapping upon the resounding surface of the drum as the first faint rays of the ascending moon silvered the encircling treetops. 
As the light in the amphitheatre increased, the females augmented the frequency and force of their blows, until presently a wild rhythmic din pervaded the great jungle for miles in every direction. Huge fierce brutes stopped in their hunting, with up-pricked ears and raised heads, to listen to the dull booming that betokened the dum-dum of the apes. Occasionally one would raise his shrill scream or thunderous roar in answering challenge to the savage din of the anthropoids, but none came near to investigate or attack, for the great apes, assembled in all the power of their numbers, filled the breasts of their jungle neighbors with deep respect. As the din of the drum rose to an almost deafening volume, Kerchak sprang into the open space between the squatting males and the drummers. Standing erect, he threw his head far back, and looking full into the eye of the rising moon, he beat upon his breast with his great hairy paws, and emitted his fearful roaring shriek. One, twice, thrice that terrifying cry rang out across the teeming solitude of that unspeakably quick, yet unthinkably dead world. Then, crouching, Kerchak slunk noiselessly around the open circle, veering far away from the dead body lying before the altar-drum, but, as he passed, keeping his little fierce wicked red eyes upon the corpse. Another male then sprang into the arena, and repeating the horrid cries of his king, followed stealthily in his wake. Another and another followed in quick succession, until the jungle reverberated with the now almost ceaseless notes of their bloodthirsty screams. It was the challenge, and the hunt. When all the adult males had joined in the thin line of circling dancers, the attack commenced. Kerchak, seizing a huge club from the pile which lay at hand for the purpose, rushed furiously upon the dead ape, dealing the corpse a terrific blow at the same time emitting the growls and snarls of combat. The din of the drum was now increased, as well as the frequency of the blows, and the warriors, as each approached the victim of the hunt and delivered his bludgeon blow, joined in the mad whirl of the death dance. Tarzan was one of the wild leaping horde, his brown sweat-streaked muscular body glistening in the moonlight shown supple and graceful among the uncouth, awkward, hairy brutes about him. None was more stealthy in the mimic hunt, none more ferocious than he in the wild ferocity of the attack, none who leaped so high into the air in the dance of death. As the noise and rapidity of the drum beats increased, the dancers apparently became intoxicated with the wild rhythm and the savage yells. Their leaps and bounds increased, their bared fangs dripped saliva, and their lips and breasts were flecked with foam. For half an hour the weird dance went on, until, at a sign from Kerchak, the noise of the drums ceased, the female drummers scampering hurriedly through the line of dancers toward the outer rim of squatting spectators. Then, as one, the males rushed headlong upon the thing which their terrific blows had reduced to a mass of hairy pulp. Flesh seldom came to their jaws in satisfying quantities, so a fit finale to their wild revel was a taste of fresh-killed meat, and it was to the purpose of devouring their late enemy that they now turned their attention. Great fangs sunk into the carcass, tearing away huge hunks, the mightiest of the apes obtaining the choicest morsels, 
while the weaker circled the outer edge of the fighting, snarling pack, awaiting their chance to dodge in and snatch a drop tidbit, or filch a remaining bone before all was gone. Tarzan, more than the apes, craved and needed flesh. Descended from a race of meat-eaters, never in his life, he thought, had he once satisfied his appetite for animal food, and so now his agile little body wormed its way far into the mass of struggling, rending apes in an endeavor to obtain a share which his strength would have been unequal to the task of winning for him. At his side hung the hunting-knife of his unknown father, in a sheath self-fashioned and copy of one he had seen among the pictures of his treasure-books. At last he reached the fast-disappearing feast, and with his sharp knife slashed off a more generous portion than he had hoped for, an entire hairy forearm, where it protruded from beneath the feet of the mighty Kerchak, who was so busily engaged in perpetuating the royal prerogative of gluttony that he failed to note the act of les majestes. So little Tarzan wriggled out from beneath the struggling mass, clutching his grisly prize close to his breast. Among those circling futilely the outskirts of the banqueters was old Tublat. He had been among the first at the feast, but had retreated with a goodly share to eat in quiet, and was now forcing his way back for more. So it was that he spied Tarzan as the boy emerged from the clawing, pushing throng, with that hairy forearm hugged firmly to his body. Tublat's little, close-set, bloodshot pig-eyes shot wicked gleams of hate as they fell upon the object of his loathing. In them, too, was greed for the toothsome dainty the boy carried. But Tarzan saw his arch-enemy as quickly and divining what the great beasts would do, he leaped nimbly away toward the females and the young, hoping to hide himself among them. Tublat, however, was close upon his heels, so that he had no opportunity to seek a place of concealment, but saw that he would be put to it to escape at all. Swiftly he sped toward the surrounding trees, and with an agile bound gained a lower limb with one hand, and then, transferring his burden to his teeth, he climbed rapidly upward, closely followed by Tublat. Up, up, he went to the waving pinnacle of a lofty monarch of the forest, where his heavy pursuer dared not follow him. There he perched, hurling taunts and insults at the raging, foaming beast fifty feet below him. And then Tublat went mad. With horrifying screams and roars he rushed to the ground, among the females and young, sinking his great fangs into a dozen tiny necks, and tearing great pieces from the backs and breasts of the females who fell into his clutches. In the brilliant moonlight Tarzan witnessed the whole mad carnival of rage. He saw the females and the young scamper to the safety of the trees. Then the great bulls in the center of the arena felt the mighty fangs of their demented fellow, and with one accord they melted into the black shadows of the overhanging forest. There was but one in the amphitheater beside Tublat, a belated female running swiftly toward the tree where Tarzan perched, and close behind her came the awful Tublat. It was Kayla, and as quickly as Tarzan saw that Tublat was gaining on her, he dropped with the rapidity of a falling stone from branch to branch toward his foster mother. Now she was beneath the overhanging limbs, and close above her crouched Tarzan, awaiting the outcome of the race. She leaped into the air, grasping a low-hanging branch, 
but almost over the head of Tublat, so nearly had he distanced her. She should have been safe now, but there was a rending, tearing sound. The branch broke, and precipitated her full upon the head of Tublat, knocking him to the ground. Both were up in an instant, but as quick as they had been, Tarzan had been quicker, so that the infuriated bull found himself facing the man-child who stood between him and Kala. Nothing could have suited the fierce beast better, and with a roar of triumph he leaped upon the little Lord Greystoke. But his fangs never closed in that nut-brown flesh. A muscular hand shot out and grasped the hairy throat, and another plunged a keen hunting-knife a dozen times into the broad breast. Like lightning the blows fell, and only ceased when Tarzan felt the limp form crumple beneath him. As the body rolled to the ground, Tarzan of the apes placed his foot upon the neck of his lifelong enemy, and raising his eyes to the full moon, threw back his fierce young head and voiced the wild and terrible cry of his people. One by one the tribes swung down from their arboreal retreats, and formed a circle about Tarzan and his vanquished foe. When they had all come, Tarzan turned toward them. "'I am Tarzan!' he cried. "'I am a great killer. Let all respect Tarzan of the apes, and Kala his mother. There be none among you as mighty as Tarzan. Let his enemies beware.' Looking full into the wicked red eyes of Kerchak, the young Lord Greystoke beat upon his mighty breast and screamed out once more his shrill cry of defiance. End of chapter. <laughs>